This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're talking about conversion experiences. By looking at Nick Flynn's poem, Harbor, the Conversion, which engages with the story of Paul or Saul as narrated in the book Acts of the Apostles. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. And hello, listeners. We've got a super intriguing poem for you today that makes use of the Saul-Paul conversion story from Acts of the Apostles. Before we read the stories and the poem, we want to go over again just some basics. As you might have noticed, Jennifer and I approach the Bible as literature and as sacred text. The thing is, The Bible is sacred for some and not for others. For everyone, though, the Bible is definitely a collection of writings that's had a profound influence on European and Euro-American culture and on lots of other cultures around the world. So when we read, we ask the same kinds of questions we would ask of any work of literature. Who wrote it? How might the historical and cultural context surrounding it have affected the production of this text? What's the scholarly conversation been like around it? What concerns do scholars bring to this text? What does the text itself want to emphasize? And what do we do with tensions and ambiguities within the work itself? And since we're reading the Bible in conjunction with other literary works, we do also ask how church priorities have pressed interpretation in certain directions. And we let the poetry and the contemporary biblical scholarship that we talk about, we let it take us beyond conventional church-based interpretation. So let's dig in. All right. Well, let me start by essentially referencing or summarizing the story. This guy named Saul, who was a Jewish man, becomes known as Paul and The story is actually told three times. We'll have these passages listed on the website, but the passages in the book of Acts are in chapter 9, verses 1 to 30, chapter 22, verses 1 to 21, and chapter 26, verses 12 to 23. But essentially what happens in this story for Saul is that he starts out being talked about as, you know, 
ushering murderous threats against the followers of Jesus and getting, you know, essentially a permission form to go arrest followers of Jesus up in the city of Damascus. And he gets this letter from the chief priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And so he has this letter and he's on his mission. And what people often refer to is this bright light and a voice booming out of the sky. And maybe he's knocked off his horse or maybe he's not. And he has this brief encounter with the risen Christ is how it's usually understood. And because he's blinded, he needs to be led into the city of Damascus and someone comes to lay hands on him and prays over him and the scales fall from his eyes and he changes his mission and his, not just his vision, because that's a funny pun, but his mission changes, his MO changes. And the rest actually of the book of Acts is, is primarily about him and his exploits. And so it's, that's where we get this change from attacking the followers of Christ to being the premier messenger for the risen Christ to the Gentiles. And that happens in beginning in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Cool. So yeah. do we know who wrote Acts of the Apostles? Actually, no. We don't know with certainty as if we could look you know, look in history and say it's this guy or this group of people. But we do tend to think of, scholars usually speak of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as two volumes. So the, and there are lots of reasons for this, but one is they both open with a reference to Theophilus. They follow similar patterns in terms of the story of Jesus's life in Luke. There's a similar kind of a pattern that applies to Stephen, the first man who is martyred, he's stoned to death, but his story and some of the things he says or does mirror what is depicted for Jesus in the gospel. And then the Jesus's disciples who become apostles, they are sent, right? Apostello, they are sent. That Their story then, in a sense, mirrors a bit of what Jesus's did in the gospel. So while we don't know who it was, we do have reason to think it was by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. I got it. they both friends of Theophilus. Indeed. <laughs> hey, I remember you pointing out in Chapter 10 of Permission Granted that the account of that conversion experience sounds different <laughs> when you read about it in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Would you read that section of Galatians? Absolutely. I always want to say the letter of Galatians, just if you're not familiar with it, is to a region, several churches in a, the area of Galatia, and he's really upset. <laughs> so I think that's helpful to know as you go into this. And he's saying, starting in verse 13 of the first chapter, you have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He's a very humble guy. But when the one who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterward 
I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, quote, The one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. End quote. Thank you for reading that. What a character, my goodness. Could you tell us a little bit about how that account in that letter is different? from, say, the conversion story as presented in Acts 9? Absolutely. There are two things I will say that pinpoint this dramatic difference. So one is the order of events. In the book of Acts, it says that he's on his way to Damascus, has this bright light encounter, goes immediately into the town of Damascus, and there he is interacting with followers of Jesus. And within a couple weeks, he ends up in Jerusalem. When you look at what we just read through, he has this awareness. Uh, It says that God revealed his son in me, not to me, as most translations suggest. So it says it sounds, sounds more like an epiphany to me. And then he talks about going to Arabia first. And so, you know, there's a segment in his version of the story, which is being told earlier than the book of Acts version is being told, that doesn't even show up in the version in Acts. So he goes off into the desert for who knows how long, and then he goes to Damascus. And then it's not for another three years before he goes to Jerusalem. So there's the order of events, they're slightly different, and this very dramatic difference in something that happens externally that other people also witness versus some sort of uh, an epiphany, an aha, um, you know, some sort of internal thought process. Not sure what to call it, but I often refer to it as an epiphany, just as a shorthand. Very different, at least in the way I understand things, right? In his own telling of the story. Yeah, it sounds a lot quieter. There's no mention (laughs) of a temporary blindness. Right. And I know that you know that the poet we're going to be looking at today was looking at Caravaggio's rendering of the conversion of Paul and holy cow, that's really dramatic. We have a horse, we have Paul down on the ground, there's an awful lot going on. This section of Galatians, I like your word epiphany, it, it, it sounds pretty quiet, and many epiphanies really are. They're not a road to Damascus, fall down, go blind, big light, flashing light, booming thunder. A lot of epiphanies aren't like that, and the one from Galatians is not like that. It is very interesting. It is. How is Paul's conversion story conventionally talked about in more conservative Christian circles? Well, I think I think it's fair to say, and this is based on my experience, which I realized does not reflect everybody's, right? But I think it's fair to say that many people, when I've heard it talked about, tend to hone in on the fact that he was speaking murderous threats and this element of this is how bad of a sinner he was. He was even killing the followers of Jesus before he had his encounter with Christ. So, yeah, I think there's kind of this tendency to talk about 
just how bad he was. And then, and then there's what's interesting to me, and I didn't think about it this way at the time, but I think about it now, is I always just assumed that the intensity, the zealotry, all of that animus, all of that would be shed as he miraculously pretty much starts being a follower of Jesus, instead of considering that people's personalities don't change just because they have a significant life shift or vision shift, and especially the way this is described, which is pretty much overnight. And so it's just interesting to me that I, I hadn't in the past thought about, well, the way he was zealous against Christ, he's going to be that kind of zealot for Christ. And there's perhaps an edge to that that we should maybe look at. But yeah, I think people look at this extreme against and now miraculously for, but think about it in a more positive way, I think, just because he's our guy. <laughs> yeah, it's that archetypal, I once was lost, but now I'm found story. As if there will be no continuity of personality, no more complexity than, yeah, I was bad and now I'm good. And that's that. Yes, exactly. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but the conversation reminded me, a colleague of mine wrote this fantastic novel called Bedrock Faith. And the central character is an ex-con named Stupot. Mm. And he lives in this Chicago neighborhood and he is such a troublemaker, gets in bad trouble, goes to prison discovers Jesus in prison and comes back and he's just as much of a troublemaker but yes. now with Jesus. Exactly. So <laughs> that's honest, right? Yeah, yeah. So listen, before we read the poem, I did want to just kind of bookmark. I know that one of your concerns about Acts of the Apostles is that it's a profoundly anti-Semitic text. And I yes. would love for you to comment a little bit later on how Paul sees his own Jewishness and Listeners, I promise you, we're going to spend an entire episode looking at the anti-Semitic currents in Acts. We're not spending too much time on it here because we're going to devote the next episode to it. But just for now, Jennifer, is there anything you wanted to say about the anti-Semitism or how Paul understands his own Jewishness? And then we'll move on. Well, I, yes. Let me just say, I, I would note, just for those who are interested in this kind of thing, Technically, in the first century, and talking about these texts, we should call it anti-Judaic content, not anti-Semitic, but I understand why that language is what people are familiar with. What's interesting to me is that the passage we just read from Galatians seems to have Paul acknowledging his prior life in Judaism, not his former and no longer a part of me life of Judaism. And that's one of the big distinctions that what was really important for me as a scholar to wrap my head around that I used to think of Paul as leaving his Jewishness behind when he became this person speaking for Jesus. And I don't think that that's honest or fair. Um, but there's more to say about that, I think. I think it, as, as time goes, I think perhaps he starts to identify more and more with these Gentile communities than ju just as identifying as a Jew. But it's it's complex, I suppose. But I think the, it's important to note that the passage from Paul himself indicates that he, no matter what he was, his message was, he still identified with his Jewish heritage. Yeah. Thank you. We'll come back to that. We'll come back. Let's take a break. Hey, this is Matt Byrne. 
producer for Wild Olive. I've got some questions for you about today's topics. So we talked about Saul's conversion. A life-changing event can radically change how you perceive everything. Specifically in Saul's story in the Acts of Apostles, what is the symbolic significance of his blindness after witnessing Jesus? Have you ever felt like you were on the road to Damascus? What parallels can you compare this event to in your own life or even other stories you've heard? Just something to consider while you listen to this episode. Now, let's get back to Jean and Jennifer. Before we read the poem, let's revisit another section of Acts, which does have parts that we could safely call travel narrative. When I think of genre, Acts of the Apostles is many things, and one of the things that it is is travel narrative. Toward the end of Acts, Paul, who's now a prisoner, is being transferred by ship to another part of the Roman Empire. A lot of action takes place on ships in this book. (laughs) And when they head to Italy, they get hit by really big storms. They go adrift and they find safety in a harbor, which I'm emphasizing because of the title of the poem. So here's Acts 27, 9 to 15, which I'm abridging really, really slightly. Quote, Sailing was now dangerous, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting out to sea. From there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, where they could spend the winter, it was a harbor off Crete, facing southwest and northwest. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose, so they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a violent wind, called the Northeaster, rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught and could not be turned head-on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. End quote. So that's the end of the passage. And I'll just summarize that they managed to survive by running the ship aground in a kind of natural harbor, a bay that's tucked into an island that turns out to be Malta. The ship gets smashed to bits, but everyone in it manages to survive by swimming to shore. Jennifer, any thoughts about that travel drama? How do you see it connecting to other parts of the legendary? <laughs> the legendary Paul. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, as a person who used to take all of the Newer Testament passages as fairly literal, right? I thought of them as, yeah, as literal narratives, and in particular, the content that we find in the book of Acts. I hadn't ever stopped to consider how these stories make Paul sound, as if he's maybe more in the company of Odysseus, right? Or who has these great travel stories, or the you know, the epic, right? Setting the scene for the epics. Or maybe similar to the characters we find in the Marvel or DC Comics universes and all the many superhero universes. But, you know, he does kind of sound that way in these narratives. Even as you were reading that, I was chuckling to myself. I mean, it says in this narrative that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot than to Paul. Well, (laughs) duh. You know, like, (laughs) why wouldn't they? You know, like, this is their job. Um, But the narrator, of course, is siding with Paul, and it's going to pronounce how Paul 
you know, tells everybody this vision he's had from God that they're all going to be saved. And, you know, it's, it makes it sound like it's all Paul's doing that they survive instead of, you know, the fact that the crew was well-trained or whatever, you know, all these different things. And it's as if Paul or God through Paul saves everybody. Um, I didn't used to think of it or summarize it with this snarky edge the way I am now, but I think it's helpful maybe to see him as a little bit more like, uh, you know, an ancient superhero. And then that's their intent. That's the intent, I think. Yes. Thank you for that. Okay. So let's shift gears. Let me say a little something about Nick Flynn. Flynn is a living American poet. He lives in Brooklyn. He's had a difficult life, including the loss of his mother by suicide and abandonment by his father, who suffers from alcoholism and who one day walked into the homeless shelter where Flynn was working. Hadn't seen him in decades, and then he walks in. Flynn became an electrician before he became a poet. His mom had always discouraged him from being a writer because his dad, had entertained dreams of being a writer, and that didn't turn out well for anyone in the family. Hmm. But writing has Mm -hmm. turned out really well for Flynn. Eventually, he could not resist his vocation, so he studied writing, published quite a few poetry collections and plays. You can go to Flynn's website and see what he says about this poem that we're about to read. It's a collaboration that he did with the photographer Misha Richter. Flynn creates poems in response to Richter's photographs and films of Provincetown. And on our website, we'll be putting a link to the image that inspired this poem. It's a still from a short film that Richter made of someone riding a horse in the bay while leading another horse. Flynn's poem also responds to a painting by Caravaggio called Saul's Conversion on the Road to Damascus. And we'll also put a link to that painting. So that's Flynn. Jennifer, would you read for us? Absolutely. And I do want to just briefly say, I was actually surprised when I saw the painting that, as Flynn said, when he sees the still, he thinks of Paul or Saul. (laughs) And I think I kind of had this moment like, really? (laughs) How fascinating that you made that connection. It says a lot about his background, I suppose. Yeah. And if I could interject before you read, I don't know if he would have thought of Paul looking at the still from the film if there hadn't been a Caravaggio painting. Exactly. Right? Precisely. Because there's no horse in the text, just to be clear. (laughs) Axe doesn't have a horse. (laughs) Right. Thank you. That's an important detail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. Here's the poem. Harbor The Conversion If this bowl is always empty, if it breathes, if it's lung, if a horse can rise from the ashes. Saul was a sailor on the boat to Damascus. He did not know what he was. Paul turned to a voice. It rose up from the waves. It chained his boat to the darkness. A man finds ash, and he makes it a man. A horse finds ash in a horse. It lifts us. It holds us. Breaks us again. Scatter him into the harbor. Thank you. 
What did you notice while you were reading that poem out loud? Oh, dear. I think my answer might be a little bit anticlimactic, but I... (laughs) That's okay. Your face was doing all kinds of interesting things. Was it? Uh, Folks, Jennifer and I can see (laughs) each other while we're talking. And yeah, your face was lighting up. Your face was lighting up. So what do you notice? Anticlimactic or give us a big bang or an anticlimax. We don't care. Right, right. Okay. Thank you for that. I just love how it doesn't make sense. And that's where you find something poetic and beautiful, right? Yeah. If a horse can rise from the ashes, if this bowl is always empty, if it breathes, if a bowl is a lung, right? What does that even, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, Yeah. You know, the boat to Damascus, not the horse to Damascus, right? This intermingling of the boat, the harbor, the horse, this thing, this change, and chaining a boat to the darkness. I just love that image. Yes. I like the playfulness and the seriousness all at the same time. Yes, yes. What about you? It has elements of surrealism. There's a surrealist feel to it. Right. Like the category that Flynn is most associated with is called recite, R-E-C-I-T, in French, recite, meaning an imagism that hits you fast. The poem (laughs) is not about an event. The poem is an event. In Rossit, the poem is an event, makes itself an event. <laughs> and I think it fits. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. it to, to put in that category. Yeah, I like what you've noticed. And we've talked about this before on this podcast, that these elements of surrealism, ambiguity, mixing metaphors, mixing and matching stories, fusing stories into one another, fusing the harbor and the road to Damascus, being on a boat, being a sailor and being on the road to Damascus. Those are all rhetorical strategies that poetry uses to kind of disable our Aristotelian mind, right? The way that we know in European and Euro-American culture tends to be, you know, we strive for certainty, we aim for certainty, and we want to know exactly what's what. And this poem really defeats that. And I would say that poetry does this. This is also something you and I have talked about recently. Poetry requires our epistemic humility, meaning we have to hold what we think we know very gently with a poem. It just doesn't allow us the kind of certainty that we could expect if we were reading the New York Times. And I think you've just really rightly identified that quality of the poem, and I appreciate that. So I guess what I would add to that also, just to kind of get started on working with this poem, which, as you could tell, we are going to need another episode to really talk about this poem in depth. But I do want to point out here what its central images are. Its central images are ash, horse, chains, darkness, sailor, boat, waves, harbor. That's one of the things that I notice when I first read a poem. What are its central images that those I think of as centers of gravity for the poem? And then we can start working with those images to begin to make meaning from the poem and to begin to connect it with this idea of conversion. But that is going to have to wait for the next episode because we're out of time. But anything you want to add before we go? Yes, I think the poem does bring together tradition and biblical text, right? So it's playing with some of the development of thought, but it also 
in working with those themes that you just highlighted or images that you just highlighted helps me think more about the actual humanity of this character, Paul or Saul, what he might have actually been going through, whether or not the story of Acts is historically reliable doesn't really matter to me. What I appreciate about this poem and Nick Flynn's work is the way it helps me to center the humanity involved. And perhaps, you know, not focus so much on the superhero, Paul or Saul, but what is in there that we can relate to today? What is going on in that story, aside from any problematic element in it? What is there that we can reclaim or something like that? And so when I look at this list or these ideas, ash, horse, chains, right? Darkness, waves. I think it's it's just a powerful combination of images. Yeah. They work on us and sometimes we don't know why they work, but they work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was lovely. I appreciate talking with you as always. Likewise. Likewise. Folks, tune in again for the next episode because we'll be going a lot deeper with the Nick Flynn poem. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Wild Olive. And stay tuned for part two. New episodes are available on the 1st and 15th of each month. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. You can ask Jennifer or Jean a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. All right, we'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. Until then, see ya!